This podcast is brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. Thanks for listening. Father God, you who have given us your word, help us to understand it. You who have given us a heart that can respond to you, pray God your spirit will strengthen us to persevere in the truth. So give us this time as we look into your word to understand and to respond. For the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son. Amen. Have you ever written off someone as being impossible to be saved? Have you ever written someone off as being impossible to be saved? Perhaps it's someone who has heard the gospel longer than you have lived. Or perhaps the people in the news who has persecuted and cute Christians, or people who are so deeply entrenched in their religion or what they believe in, that it seems impossible to even hold a conversation about Jesus. Have you ever written someone off as being impossible to be saved? This morning as we come to Romans 11, the Gentile Christians are confronted by the Apostle Paul himself about their views of the unbelieving Jews. The Gentile Christians had to contend with the unbelieving Jews who have not only rejected the gospel, they have made it their goal to make life miserable for Christians. They even find that as their source of meaning to um, go forth and chase and imprison Christians. So this morning as we kind of step away from our Singapore culture and try to slip in briefly into the first culture, first century of the Roman culture, um, we'll quickly start to realize the tension between Gentile Christians and their opponents, the anti-Christian Jews. Now, when Christianity first emerged in the first century, it was the religious Jews who have rejected the gospel of Jesus and persecuted the Christians. It was not, it was not the Gentiles, it was the Jews who were persecuting the Jews, uh, Christian Jews. And if you flip through the historic book, so historical book of Acts, you know, the religious Jews will be seen that they have started persecuting Christians right at the start. They have flogged the apostles from chapter 4. They have stoned Stephen in chapter 6. And when the Jerusalem Christians dispersed out of fear, they took up their whatever and they went out to chase after the Christians uh, to imprison them. In fact, later in Acts 12, there was this account of this Gentile king by the name Herod. He received approval from the unbelieving Jews when he killed the Apostle James. And he says, let's do that to Peter as well, but Peter got away. And as we read on, we realize that as the gospel messengers, those with beautiful feet, goes around, um, it was the Gentiles who received the gospel repeatedly, and it was the Jews who rejected it repeatedly. So how natural it was then for Gentile Christians in Rome to kind of write off the unbelieving Jews as people rejected by God. After all, Paul was the one who ended last week's chapter 10 with these words, All day long, God says, I held up my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. And this is how Romans 11 begins. As Paul raises the question about God's dealing with the Jews, he speaks not to Jewish Christians, he speaks to Gentile Christians. And this is how Paul started 
chapter 11, verse 1. Look at it with me. Verse 1, Paul says, I ask then, did God reject his people? You know, to that question, the actual Gentile Christians uh, in Rome might say, well, it seems like God has rejected his people. After all, didn't Paul say just in chapter 9, verse 6, that not all who descended from Israel are Israel? And chapter 9, verse 31, the people of Israel, they pursue righteousness through law and they will not obtain it. Chapter 10, verse 3, they did not submit to the righteousness of God. And chapter 10, verse 18, last week, they, did they hear the message of Christ? Yes, of course they did, but they chose not to. So this question when Paul asked, did God reject his people? The first readers, unlike us, might say, yes, probably God did. But Paul answers, by no means. And without a pause, Paul supports his reply with two examples. The first one is in verse 1. He says this, I am an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. Now, everyone knows the story of Paul. The Roman Christians knew about Paul, isn't it? He considered himself to be the worst of sinners, who not only rejected the gospel, he made it a point to capture and imprison um, Christians. In fact, he would travel the world to arrest Christ- Jews, Jewish Christians, so that he can put them in jail. Paul, the unconverted Paul, at the time he was called Saul of Tarsus, uh, it, it's probably not too far-fetched at the time when he was known as Paul of Tarsus, that people think that this guy is beyond salvation. In fact, this guy is not only anti-Christian, he's probably the anti-Christ. He finds pleasure in pulling and imprisoning Christians. In fact, when God told a disciple by the name Ananias, 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 go to Damascus to look for Saul. He's ready to turn to me. You know what Ananias says? God, I've heard many reports. This is in uh, Acts 9. I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from chief priests to arrest all who call your name. Even Ananias at that time was like, God, are you sure? But guess what? Paul of Tarsus became Paul. Saul of Tarsus became Paul the apostles to the Gentiles to bring good news to the Gentiles. You know, I think this is what Paul's point is to start off with himself, that the impossible have come to the Lord. And he moved on to Elijah, which we read earlier uh, earlier on in our responsive reading. He says that not only just one special Jew who become Christians, there are many more that God has chosen. We have read the story earlier on that Israel's own king, King Ahab, he's kind of betrayed God. And Elijah, he stood in his own land, among his own people, against 450 Baal prophets under the queen herself. And when he turned and Mount Carmel and says to the Israelites, Do you want to serve Baal or do you want to serve God of Israel? They kept silent. So it was no wonder when he went to the Mount of Horeb, he says to God, and this is quoted in the passage we read earlier on, in Romans 11, 3, it says, Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars. I am the only one left and they're trying to kill me. You know what? In the eyes of Elijah, Israel is a write-off. They have rejected God and they have gone against him. And only one, one poor soul standing at Mount Herod, Horeb is, uh, is still faithful. There is no hope for the remnants. 
But what did God say to Elijah? Look at verse 4. I have reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to bow. Now, while Elijah was condemning Israel, God says, it is not just one that I have kept for myself. I've kept more than you can imagine. So dear friends, all through our church and Christian history, we read of Christians who underwent grief, persecutions. We read of Christians who became alienated by their own people, their own family, by their own tribe, by their own country. People who find it hard to imagine the likelihood of the religious people around would ever come to know the Lord. But the Lord has done it all the time. That the most unexpected people comes to the Lord. God's mercy and God's grace often stretch beyond what we can imagine, sometimes beyond what we are even willing to imagine. Because some of the people that we may not like become Christians and become more fervent for the Lord than us. So for the first century Gentile Christians in Rome, they don't see or expect Jews to change their mind. They see the unconverted religious Jews to be mere persecutors of Christians, people who are willing to kill their own kinsmen. So to the Gentile Christians in Rome, what relationships would they want with the unrepentant Jews if you're there? Perhaps it's possible that even the Gentile Jews, the Christians in Rome will say, well, we live our heaven-bound life. They live their hell-bound life. Because if they kill their own apostles, their own people, the apostles, what hope is that? If even Apostle Paul can't convert them, why should we even bother? But Paul warns the Gentiles against such an assumption. Look at verse 5. Verse 5. Just as God has kept thousands of remnants for himself in the time of Elijah, verse 5 says, So too at present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. So God has kept remnants in Elijah's time. Paul says God will keep remnants and has kept remnants in our time. And it will go on. Why, why can we say that? The reason is because that remnants are never preserved by human hands. Remnants are always preserved by God's grace. Which is what verse 6 tells us is by grace, not based on works or grace will no longer be grace. So like God's word to Elijah, verse 1 to 6 in today's passage tells us that God's grace is much bigger than what Gentile Christians in Rome can imagine. Now I just want to make it clear also, and Paul makes it clear that what he's saying in 1 to 6 does not contradict what he has been saying all the time that it is through Christ that salvation comes. Because verse 7 to 10 goes on to describe the harsh reality of those who remain hardened, refusing to come to Jesus. Paul quotes from the law. If you look at that section, he quotes from law, he quotes from prophets, he quotes from the writings. How the hardened who seeks righteousness by works will not obtain it, and God's judgment will fall on them. But what is Paul's point in mention 1 to verse 10? Is this, that God has remnants that Christians do not yet know. Or can they yet see? For as long as a person has not died, their story has not ended. And Paul repeats his question now in verse 11. So look at verse 11 as he says this again. Again I ask, did they stumble so that 
so as to fall beyond recovery? Paul answers again, not at all. They're rebellious so that salvation comes to the Gentiles. It's not the rebellion, is it not the rebellion of the Jews that the Gentiles become Christian? Is it not because they persecuted and killed Stephen that the gospel spread very widely from Jerusalem to the rest? Was it not because the persecutors of Paul that keep speeding up, speeding him from town after town, putting him in prison, putting him in the court so that people in the marketplace hear the gospel, people in the prison, the prisoners, the guards get to hear the gospel and the courts, the people who had to judge him gets to hear the gospel? Is it not because of the rebellion that God uses to drive the gospel to the Gentiles. So God's, the rebellion of the Jews was not the end of the story, but the salvation of the Gentiles is also not the end of the story. Look at verse 11 to 15. It's kind of a bit of a complicated one, so I put it as a, as a box. that uh, As I read it, I hope you make it easier for us to recognize. There's something about grace that the Gentile Christian didn't recognize, and there's something about grace that perhaps we ourselves do not think about very much. But let me read verse 11 to 15, and you see what Paul is trying to bring, where the Jews rebel, the Gentiles get saved, and through the Gentiles, Jews get saved uh, through them. Let me read verse 11 to 15. Because of the Jews' transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles. To make Israel envious. Verse 12. But if their transgressions means riches for the world, and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, then how much greater riches will their full inclusion as God's people will bring? And verse 13, talking about the Gentiles, I'm talking to you Gentiles in as much as I am the apostle to the Gentiles, I take pride in my ministry to you. Verse 14, in the hope that I may somehow arouse my own people to envy and save some of them. And again, verse 15, for if their rejection, the Jews' rejection, brought reconciliation to the world of the Gentiles, what will their acceptance, the Jews' acceptance, be but life from the dead? So in five short verses, you realize this is what Paul is saying is happening. They have only recognized up to point number two, but they are missing out point number three. And as we go on later on, you realize that this trend will go on again and again a few more times. The rebellion of the Jews, as witnessed by the Gentile Christian, is not the end of the story. God's plan to save this broken world has never failed. That God, when the Jews rebelled, He used that to save the Gentiles. And when the Gentiles become safe, God is going to use that to bring more Jews back to Him. So even as Paul makes himself known as the apostle to the Gentiles, notice what he's trying to do. He says, My intention is this, that my own kinsmen, the Jews, in my time, might become envious and they will turn back to God. Envious because they start to notice when the Gentiles received the gospel, they became what they longed to be. They get a relationship that they wish they had. They become transformed the way that they are supposed to be by the law, but they couldn't. And that 
they have what was promised to them. You know, a sociologist of religion, this guy by the name Rodney Stark, he once examined the, the spread of Christianity in the early centuries, and he wrote this account, not from a Christian perspective, but from a sociologist perspective. I'll read you two, two accounts that he writes. He says this, in, six, in 165 and 251, epidemic began to sweep through the Roman Empire, killing perhaps a quarter to a third of population. The response of many people was to leave town when the epi- epidemic arrived and not return until it was gone. Well, a reasonable strategy for survival. Many Christians harvest state and look after the sick. Christians also cared for non-Christians who were sick, some of whom it is reasonable to suppose became Christians. Well, he writes as a sociologist. And second, he wrote again, this time about first century. You know, abortions, exposure of unwanted infants, they didn't want the kids, they just put it on the street and they would die, are widespread in the first century Rome, but were not practiced by Christians. Indeed, the Christians, sometimes they took infants from the streets who are left to die to bring it home. You know what is Paul saying? Paul is saying the Jews who see the transformative power of the gospel wants what the Gentiles have, the kind of relationship with God, the kind of transformation, the kind of things they long for in the law, but they could not obtain through the law, the realization that Jesus is the fulfillment of the law, the prophets, and the writings. The salvation plan of God that started with the Jews and landed with the Gentiles does not end there. The Jews were not a means to an end for the Gentiles. Well, they are being used to. It's not, they are never a means to ends. They are there and they were used to save the Gentiles and the Gentiles will help to let the Jews recognize that that is what God has all along. And then the riches of the gospel will become even greater when the rebellious turn back. Verse 15 tells us that when the Jews accept the gospel, they too will be rescued from the death due for their sins, and they too receive life. So back to the question in verse 11, did the Jews stumble so as to be beyond hope? Paul says no. More Jews will be saved. Now God's salvation plan is always greater. God is always more gracious than we think. And God's salvation plan includes the elects that we cannot see. Even Elijah can see it. Dear brothers and sisters, while this is Paul's kind of proclamation to the Gentile Christians about the Jews, and the underlying truth is actually just as relevant to us. That is, we have the same kind of God today who are more gracious than we are. And we have a God today whose salvation plan includes elects that actually we don't know and we can't assume. Now the question must be, why does Paul want to tell the Jews, uh, the, the Gentile Christians, all these things? Look at verse 17 and 18. Why did he bother to tell that no Jews are not the end, your salvation is not the end, more Jews will be saved? Why did he say that? Look at verse 17 and 18. You see the same pattern. If some of the branches, meaning some of the Jews, were broken off, and then you, the Gentile Christians, though a wild olive shoot, have been grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing sap of the olive root that you're enjoying what was began with the Jews. 
Paul says in verse 18, do not consider yourself to be superior to those other branches. If you do consider this, you do not support the root, but the root supports you. Now what's Paul's point in telling all this thing? His point is this, for the Christians, do not consider yourself better than the Jews who seem to have rejected the gospel. Do not think you are better because you accept the gospel. Do, you, do not think they are worse because they rejected the gospel. For the root that supports the Gentile Christians are the patriarchs like Abraham and through whom God established his promise and through them that Jesus, the Son of God, came forth. The reason Paul speaks of himself and then he speaks of the remnant of Elijah and more of the Jews to be saved and then the Gentile salvation comes through the Jews is so that the Gentile Christians may never become proud and arrogant by despising those who have not believed. Now, let's dig a bit deeper. Why, why does Paul want to warn them against pride? I think the reason is this, because Paul does not want them to move away from humility, because that is the characteristics of Christians who came to God with nothing but sin and received everything that are not theirs. That is the characteristics of a Christian, that they have humility before they can receive to realize that I have nothing. God, have mercy on me. You know, the day when we look at another human being and think that he or she does not deserve salvation, is the day that we are in danger of thinking too highly of ourselves. Let me say that again. The day when we look at another human being and think that he or she does not deserve salvation because they've done bad things, is the day we are in danger to think that we are more highly than we are, thinking that we actually deserve the gospel a bit more than them. On another hand, the day when we start to look at another human being and think that he or she may never come to know the gospel because they have heard enough, is the day that we think too lowly of the power of the gospel and the grace of God. Do you, do you see what's happening that Paul is concerned about? Because the moment the Christians lose sight and start to think in this way, they're either thinking too highly of themselves or they start to think too lowly of the power of God's gospel and the grace of God for his remnants. Now suppose the Gentile Christian in Rome become arrogant and they say to Paul, look at verse 17, uh, 19, they say, they say this to Paul, Paul, well, you know, the branches, the Jews, they were broken off so that I could be grafted in. Paul's reply is in verse 20, granted. But they were broken off because of unbelief and you stand by faith. Do not be arrogant but tremble. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Can you see the danger of what that little kind of emotions with the uh, Jews uh, have on the Gentile Christians? Remember the question we started off? Have you ever written someone off as being impossible to be saved? Paul's warning to the Gentile Christians in Rome is this. Do not write off the Jews because God has not. Christians, be careful. At least you grow in arrogance. Instead, of trem- instead, tremble and know that we are saved only by grace through faith. We come to God with nothing but sin. We cry for mercy and God gave us forgiveness through the Son and He made us His children. We've done nothing to deserve salvation 
And now God has more remnants among those who seem to be beyond salvation, among the Jews that seem beyond hope in the eyes of the Gentiles. Look at verse 22, 23. You see the pattern again. Consider therefore the kindness and sternness of God, sternness to those who fell, kindness to you, provided that you continue in His kindness, otherwise you will, you also will be cut off. And look at that, verse 23. And if they do not persist in unbelief, they will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. Let us be humble and not write off anyone from the possibility of salvation. But perhaps, dear friends, that we we are not in that situation, that we are not arrogant, thinking that some people are not worth saving, be terrorists or you know, criminals. But perhaps we are on the other side, we kind of get discouraged that our loved ones, our spouse, our children, our siblings, our friends, people we have shared the gospel, we've prayed for, cried for, they have not accepted the gospel. There is encouragement for us in this passage too, because we do not know if they will reject the gospel or they will actually unexpectedly turn back and accept the Lord Jesus Christ, whom they have rejected, when they see the transformed lives of Christians and they cry out and say, I want that. Now, I once read or heard a question about suffering, and it goes something like this. Someone says this, No, if God is a good God, why does He make us go through suffering and pain in our old age? Why can't we you know, enjoy our life and like that and we all finish? Why is, if God is a good God, why He brings suffering like that? And the reply was this, Perhaps, just perhaps, the suffering and the pain that sometimes you get through old age it's so that those people who have been arrogant all their life, who rejects God and wants to be God, who have spent all their life and they have nothing, and they are miserable, and they have nothing else to offer, and they realize, I'm wrong. God, will you still take me? And God said, yes. That is our God, isn't it? Things that we can't, God, if you are a good God, why suffering? God says, so that I can save more of you. I remember, um, I think if you ask pastors, this is often the case when you go to hospitals that people who are older, who have refused the gospel all the time, they come to know the Lord. I remember that when I'm probably my kid's age, when my neighbor became a Christian. In fact, my grandfather became a Christian just before he dies uh, in 1988. So, so this is our God. Look at, look at what Paul is trying to draw in this point that, this point that God is more gracious than we are. And God's salvation plan includes elects that we just can't see today. So let us remain humble and not write off people from the possibility of salvation. And let us not be dismayed that those who have not saved and that we long for salvation, that they might turn back when they see the transformative work of the gospel. Not perfect, but transformative in church and in Christians. Now Paul's concern for the Gentiles not to fall into arrogance, pride, conceit continues in verse 25 and 26 and his plans further on. You see the same pattern uh, and I hope this helps to look at this chapter easier. Verse 25, Paul says, I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced hardening in part until the full number of Gentiles has come in, in verse 26. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. 
Now here Paul's focus is not some kind of end times conversion of all Israel. For Paul clearly hopes, even in verse 14, that while he's bringing the apostle to the Gentiles, some of his own people become jealous and they turn back. Paul's concern, first of all here, is that Christians should never be conceited. Only part of the Israel experienced the hardening, and all Israel, that is all the Jews who are elected by God, that we see in verse 7, the remnants who may not be obvious at this point will eventually turn back to God by the same gospel that we Gentiles believe in. Because God's deliverer from Zion, the Lord Jesus himself, will draw the elected Jews back to himself. Now, someone says, so, so when, will God, when will God do this? I, I, I'm not sure. I don't think it is a specific generation. I think it is more of a continual journey that God always has his remnants. In Elijah's time, in Paul's time, in times we least expect until Christ's return. Now, while Paul is clearly speaking about the Jews, the truth is applicable throughout the world. Now, there will always be people who accept and reject the gospel on hearing it. But we do not have the vision on who will ultimately be responding and be the elected. This is repeated again in verse 28 to 31. It's the same uh, way that Paul says. And he added one more thing. He wanted to say that it's always God's mercy that saves. Verse 30, Gentiles, once disobedient, receive mercy. 31, Jews who are disobedient may also receive mercy by the same gospel. You know, at the end of the day, it's God's grace that brings the rebellious and disobedient to salvation. This is the story of God's grace to undeserving Jews and Gentiles. No wonder Paul ends with this beautiful doxology in verse 33. Look at it. Speaking of God's glorious grace, all the depth of the riches of the wisdom of the knowledge of God, how unsearchable His judgment and His paths beyond tracing out. It's not just an end thing, but all true generations, Jews will no longer be dependent on their history, but they are transformed because of the gospel. So on the final day in heaven, there will be no Jews who can claim to be superior over the Gentiles, for they are mere remnants saved by the mercy of God. In fact, they were saved because of their envy when they look at the Gentiles. And on that day in heaven, there will be no Gentiles who can claim to be superior over the Jews, for salvation came through God's promise to the patriarchs such as Abraham and through Jesus Christ, his son born as a Jew. No wonder Paul sings of God's wisdom and knowledge and glory because there will be in heaven Jews and Gentiles worshipping God and they look at each other and say, well, I'm not better than you and you're not better than me. We're all by grace. Could you imagine if you have just gone the Old Testament way, you know, Gentiles get saved if they come to Jews, well, we are the good guys. Or the way that Paul is preventing the, the Gentiles in Rome, so, well, we're, we're the superior one who accept, too bad for them. But Paul is saying, on that final day, you will both realize that you shouldn't be here, but you have been here because God saved you. So in conclusion, dear brothers and sisters, I think it's good to think about the question we first asked. Have we ever written someone off as being impossible to be saved? 
but someone that resembles Saul of Tarsus, who became Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles. Have we ever lost hope of our loved ones, our spouse, siblings, our family, our children, thinking they never will come to Jesus because we do not know. As long as they have not died, the story has not ended. In fact, we should neither be arrogant and dismayed, but we should humbly come to God with gratefulness and to pray even more urgently because that's what Paul does. He prays. He trusts. We pray that God may transform us by His Word and His Spirit that we become more like Christ because who knows that there will be someone who has rejected Christ when they look at us, imperfect as we are, but being transformed, and look at our church, imperfect but being transformed as we are, and they say, I want that. That's what I searched for all my life. The Lord can and may use us. We do not know because our eyes cannot see but we have a calling and we can respond. So with that, let me close with 34, 36, as I read it for us to be reminded of the wise, gracious and glorious God we have. Verse 34, Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counsellor? Who has ever given to the Lord that he should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Let's pray. God, who have expected that Gentiles can be saved through the Jews and who would have expected that Jews can be saved when they look at the Gentiles who have become Christians. Father, the grace that you've given us, we do not deserve. Never let us be arrogant. Always keep us humble when we look at people that God, you can save even the unexpected, because we are the unexpected. And we say, look at our family and our loved ones who are not saved yet. Father, we pray you help us to persevere and not be dismayed because we do not know. Perhaps God, you will save them. So Father, we pray for our church and for ourselves that God, you will make us more like Christ so that those who see us and the gospel that is in us will say that they too want to know Jesus for His glory and for your glory. Amen. This podcast is brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. Thanks for listening.